0: In our last episode, we talked about the expanse of the kingdom of God. And if you remember, faithful listener, we I had went on this little monologue about Islam. And, you know, what's funny is in evangelicalism, we are a little paranoid about salvation. We're a little paranoid about who gets in. We, we're a little paranoid about our own salvation. And so today we're going to talk about universal salvation what that means is how is the entire world being saved and is it possible for the entire world to be saved and like how does how does salvation affect everybody so by you the know, way I'm Jeremy and and I'm Jonathan <laughs> alright sorry just in case you didn't remember our names yeah we're the evangelicals yeah yeah, yeah. this is a dry episode because our Pro Tools is has crashed <laughs> But the thing is, we got together to have this conversation and it's on the schedule, so we're... We're doing it. Yeah, we're doing it. And we're putting it on the internet. You're listening to it right now, which <laughs> right. is cool. Sorry to interrupt. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So, okay, so, yeah, maybe maybe buckle up for safety. Yeah. You know, if you are driving, you should You have your seatbelt on anyway. It's right, right, right. public right. service announcement. So, Jeremy, first off... I remember when I was a college student, Rob Bell wrote the book, Love Wins. In the book, he essentially went through the historical case for people, for heaven and hell, okay, how different thinkers throughout Christianity and history have thought about it. And at the conclusion of the book, essentially, he said that he submits to God's authority, and that if god is a loving god it really may be the case that god may forgive more people than we assume that god's going to forgive and that god that the way to salvation eternal salvation in heaven might be more open than we sometimes think and people called him a heretic i mean they they completely uh sabotaged him excommunicated him you know john piper Uh, His famous tweet was, was it so long, Rob Bell, or goodbye, Rob Bell, something like that. I remember I was attending a church, and I remember that the Rob Bell book became the topic of the sermon that Sunday, and the the pastor said, you know, this is garbage, and and you shouldn't, you don't even need to waste your time reading it. Well, as a curious college student, that was actually The the last thing you want to say. That was the thing that made me actually go buy the book and read it. So, I went and bought the book and read it. And then I went to my chaplain at my university, which was all at Nazarene University, which is a very conservative Christian college. And I go to the chaplain and I say, Okay, I just read this book by Rob Bell. I, could, I know it's scandalous. Can you tell me what part of it's scandalous? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, He said, So, just between you and me, everybody's saying it's scandalous. So, I've read it too. And it, to me, just seems kind of like a historical overview of people who, throughout history, have been just asking the same question that Rob Bell's asking. <laughs> and it was, you know, but right, right, right. but it seems like there are two things going on. There's like this popular version of Christianity that says, we all know who's going to heaven and hell, But then there's this other honest like part of our movement that's like actually if I read all the scriptures about heaven and hell, I'm a little confused and I feel a little insecure and anxious. And can you help me with it? You know?
1: Yeah. And yeah, the, the Rob Bell book, um, you made me just feel old. Cause I was already a pastor when that book came out and you were in college. So, um, we had a college pastor who wanted to take his college group through it at our church. And was that allowed? Well, <laughs> so the story is we, um, a lot of uh, concern because we showed actually showed the the promo that Rob Bell did for the book uh-huh. um, in our church to you know to to let the the college group or young adults like know peak interest yeah exactly it. right exactly and people were you know they they, they got a little upset and so we uh, I'm so thankful for the pastor that I had at the time uh, went through it as a staff read the book together, discussed it, talked about it, and I actually led the group with um another one of the pastors on on there and and kind of came to the same conclusion that he really said nothing new. He was just contributing to a conversation that's been happening since the beginning. And um and when you actually read it and and understand that he isn't saying like it, it's interesting because everybody loves C.S. Lewis, um you know, the Narnia guy. Uh, and they love the lion the witch and the wardrobe but i feel like people haven't read much else of cs lewis because lewis is asking the same exact questions that Rob bell was asking and and if you read the last battle it it is pretty um intriguing when uh lewis gets to the end um his understanding of what that's going to what what that might look like i guess well there's there's the last battle but there's also
0: even the great divorce yeah the great divorce is, unbelievable is not very prescriptive right. of like heaven and hell. Right, right. That's right, like the right, whole right. thing. I mean, C.S. Lewis, the the guy it's a great point, Jeremy. He's the guy who people would say,
1: Oh man, if there's anybody that's orthodox, it's C. S. Lewis, well And they base it on mere Christianity and the Lion the Witch and the Yeah! Love. but he wrote a whole lot more than that and yeah. and asked a whole lot more questions. And and once again, Chronicles and Narnia is actually a seven book series, but I don't think anybody ever makes it to the last battle. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so so today we we're gonna talk a little bit about salvation and and just ask pose some of our own questions. I and I, I also I want to say I think that there's a way of having this conversation that is deconstructive. And that that is um I think when, when people start talking about eternal salvation, they feel like the con- the conversation leans toward deconstruction where, well, you know, if you don't have security with salvation, what do you have? And I, I want to offer, we want to offer kind of a middle way in this episode where, I mean, if you just are honest and humble with yourself, you recognize the great mystery of eternal destiny is so profound that none of our minds can actually honestly comprehend all of it. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And so we believe, Jeremy and I believe that Christ is going to come as the judge as the creed says. And so the question for us is not whether or not Christ is going to come as the judge. The question for us is with the different examples of judgment that we have in scripture, what does that look like? Yeah. And how does that affect the way that we're talking about salvation? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So buckle up.
0: Yeah. So, so I want to, I want to start, I want to start a little bit by, by talking about the different, different misunderstandings of faith that people have. And then we'll go into a conversation about what it means to be saved. So there was a writer named Terence Tilley, who's a uh, religion professor, who uh, wrote this little book about religion, and he comes up with these four different misunderstandings of faith that I think are really helpful. The first one is the rationalist misunderstanding of faith. The rationalist misunderstanding of faith says that faith is about belief, that if you believe something, then you have faith. And this is kind of what Protestants, this is very much a Lutheran thing that comes out of Lutheranism, you know, that if you believe hard enough, then you have faith. Uh, Luther bases his understanding of salvation on Paul's uh, work to the Romans where he says, you are saved by faith apart from works. Okay. And the idea there is that faith is in some way just belief. Well, it
1: their passage of Romans that if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you'll be saved. Or, yeah. Or so something confess through your mouth,
0: Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised from the dead. You'll be saved. Romans it's in Romans 10. Yeah. So then, so then there's the moralist misunderstanding of faith, which equates salvation with just what we do. And there are people that say, you know, this is what the Salvation Armyists do, or some people with liturgy, this is what the Catholics do, that they're all about, or confession. They think that by their deeds, they'll be saved. Where, you know, Paul says, you know, you're saved apart from deeds. Well, James actually says that faith without deeds is useless, you know? Dead. So you have these two polarities, the rationalist misunderstanding, the moralist misunderstanding. What I believe saves me, what I do saves me. And then there's two other... There's two other um uh, misunderstandings. One is the emotionless misunderstanding, and many people say that the Wesleyans have the emotionalist misunderstanding of faith that it's when I feel it. It's that when my heart is changed, when I have kind of an emotional experience, that's when I know that I'm saved. that's the evidence of it. you know and the question about the the question you know to the emotionalist misunderstanding of faith is well. What happens in the moments when you're not feeling it, right, you know? Right, right, right. And then there's the religious misunderstanding of faith, what it essentially would say that if I'm associated with religion, then somehow ambiguously I'm just saved. So I go to church. I have no emotional connection to it. I can't really point to any sort of you know ethic or belief that's guiding my life. But I attend. I show up. I'm a part of the group. I'm going to be saved. And maybe the religious misunderstanding of faith is what Jesus came to kick against with the Jews. This idea that you know out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. So those are four different misunderstandings of faith. The reason that I bring those up is because I think that our rationalist misunderstanding of faith, thinking that belief is the most important thing is the reason that we have pushed the Romans road so hard, mm. you know? yeah, And we really are convinced that if we can just get people to believe something, they'll be saved. And we dismiss then kind of the fullness of salvation that, maybe Jesus would want to bring us in our lives, you know, um, when you think about salvation, Jeremy, how do you, how do you teach it or talk? Like if someone were to come with you to you with the question and say, you know, pastor Jeremy, how do I know that I'm saved? Like what's, what's the evidence, you know, or how do I know that? What do you, how do you have that conversation? What do you say to them?
1: Can I talk a little bit about that? Let me just comment on what's what you just talked about. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back um, to that. Um, I feel like that most often when we're talking about salvation and having conversations about that, we really are narrowing the focus of who gets in and who gets out or whatever. And it becomes an us and them mentality that I believe this, therefore I'm good, and these people don't believe this. And it's easier to um, – it's more nice and neat. It's more um, easier for me to swallow. Um, and, and we like things, if, especially if belief is a big thing for you, we like things that we can categorize in such ways that I can know who's in, who's out. If you believe my like me, then we're good. If you don't, whatever. And so I feel like it's, it is a way to narrow the understanding of salvation rather than expand. And it seems yeah. like Jesus was always trying to make it a little bit bigger than than what was going on in the time that he lived. Um, he, he, the Jews thought it was just for them. And Jesus was like, yeah, but there's the Gentiles as well. And there's the Samaritans. And they, so it seemed like he was always trying to make it bigger, have a bigger understanding than more narrow. Um, I think when I talk, um, have conversations about salvation, and, and it's interesting because we just had some, I've just been involved in some of these conversations about what it looks like, is I think it, it I really try to, have the understanding that god is renewing us and renewing creation and that part of what it means to be saved is not just what happens to me after i die um but it actually has ramifications and hope for the world today and um in at the end of book of revelation jesus says in revelation 21 i'm making all things new and and something that, that that came up as I was looking through that, because we just finished the book of Revelation, it he didn't say, I'm going to make all new things, but rather I'm going to make um, everything new. And so it's not a, a getting rid of all the stuff and let's make new things, but the salvation is a recovering and a re-understanding of the things that are here and what does it look like for those things to have the image of God, those people to have the image of God imprinted on their life. And so I think... I'm reading through a book now by H. Ray Dunning, who's professor at, at Tribeca and wrote a lot about holiness and he wrote a book called Pursuing the Divine Image. That that what holiness is and what maybe salvation is the beginning of this understanding of re renewing the image of God that is in us and how do we live to that and that that has ramifications for creation that has ramifications for the world and so I think trying to help people understand that your salvation is not just this individual understanding of what God does in your heart it's you are being called to a story that is for all of creation and that God is renewing and redeeming all of creation and that salvation is us finding our part in the story that God is writing for the world.
0: So putting salvation in that perspective of God's initiative, redeeming all things, well, that shapes a salvation conversation very differently. Uh, yeah. And I don't know, how then do you answer the question, how does someone know that they're saved, Jeremy? I mean, I understand that, I, I'm, I, I hear everything that you just said. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, do you just completely reframe the question when someone comes to you and kind of asks you the question? Because because it's almost it's almost like you're talking about two different things. I'm the, a person comes and says they're concerned about their own individual salvation, and it's almost as if you're saying to them, "Uh, it's not at the end of the day about your personal salvation." Am I missing something?
1: No, I would say I would say that that God is calling us to be a part of his story. And it is an individual thing, but only because I'm part of the bigger story of what God's doing in the world, because I'm a part of that, then it does have individual ramifications for how I live and what I do. And I think there is a a, a, conf, a confession part, but I think um, in our tradition specifically, um, but not only, we've made it about um, one moment rather than a journey and that, that salvation isn't just something that, um, that, that is the end, but it's just the beginning Mm. of what God wants to do in your heart and life. And, and I feel like sometimes we focus so much on one moment or two moments in our tradition that, that we've, we've sold short the bigger picture once again, the expanding and understanding of what God is actually doing and what he's calling us to be a part of. And so is there an individual part of it? Yeah, I think God calls us all as individuals, but we are only called as individuals because we're part of the bigger understanding of what God, I think, is doing in the world. So, is that helpful or Yeah,
0: not? so when I think about what God's doing in the world, it makes me think about all people who are not necessarily those who just confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and then it, it kind of makes me ask the question, does God love those people as much as God loves me? <laughs> Do I sound like a narcissist? <laughs> and and I, think about, I think about the Psalms. So David writes that God knit him together in his mother's womb. Yeah. Do I actually believe that God knit together those individuals that jumped on planes on September 11, 2001? Mm. And... Um, you know steered them guided them into those towers in downtown new york city do i actually believe that god is wanting or hoping and was wanting or hoping to redeem their lives you know it, it seems it seems so cut and dry to talk about salvation when i only think about my context mm. I've got to just convert the people in Lima, Ohio to my version of evangelical Christianity, then they'll vote right, live right and die right. You know what I'm saying? Wow. But but what about these people in other in other lands who don't speak my language, don't have any sense of my civilization or you know, political life, mm. you know, or even any sense of my religion. How does God relate to them? Right. So Jesus says this line in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. That line is probably the line in the new Testament that makes me think the most what Jesus came to do was completely necessary. And if there's going to be salvation for anyone on earth, it's going to have to be through Jesus. Okay, so this is how I read that verse, okay? Essentially, that claim is that what Jesus is doing is essential and no one else is, he says it, no one else is coming to the Father except through me. So the question becomes, how do people, how do people get to the Father if, you know, if I'm not there to tell them? Yeah. You know?
1: Do you think that, that, the hard part about what makes this more difficult maybe to have this conversation is if you come from a more reformed understanding um theologically then it is easy for you to just say, well, God did just create people to send them to hell and God created some people to go to heaven. And and that's not all a reformed theology, but some of your stricter Calvinists Calvinists the five pointers. have that understanding. And so they would just be like, yeah, those guys that flew planes into town. Like they were just We have created. names for them,
0: Jeremy. They are reprobates.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I just think that that's what's so difficult is is I feel like what what we're talking about is it's definitely more of a Wesleyan understanding of of who God is and who Jesus is. That that God didn't create people, some people, and they just have no shot whatsoever to get to heaven. That that we do believe that that when it says for God so loved the world, that he was talking on a bigger scale and not just the people that will Follow him, um, and and I feel like most often, once again, it it stems from a place of nobody ever says God created some people to go to hell, and they are one of those people. <laughs> it's most often they're on the inside of the group. They they are the people who are good. That tends to be the case. Yeah, and so it, it's just interesting because then it once again is just that dichotomy of. I'm good. These people are bad. And it's almost like it makes us feel better that, um, that there are people who are going to suffer so that I can somehow be better than them or have a better life than them rather than, than hoping and praying that God might have mercy on all people. Like, isn't that what we would, like, if we were really um, following after Jesus who literally went to the cross so that all people could be saved have a a a way to 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 begin this journey and have this journey of of being who Jesus has created them to be then wouldn't it actually break our heart rather than make us feel better about what we're doing and 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 the fact that we're living the life that we're living and um and I feel like once again there's just this tendency to be like yeah god those people are definitely out because it makes us feel better about maybe the sacrifices we're making. And it's more of a, a narcissistic ego boost to my own life. It makes me feel better about doing what I'm doing. If I know that other people aren't going to potentially get what I feel like is going to be mine in the end. I don't know.
0: Okay. So as it pertains to entitlement at the judgment, Okay, yeah. I just feel like Matthew 25 is so important. And you know, you may be out there thinking to yourself, Jonathan, you guys reference Matthew 25 too much. I don't, I don't know how not to because it just is a troubling scripture. So in Matthew 25, the Bible tells us that in the end, the Son of Man will come and will separate the nations as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. So the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, for I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Clothe me. I was sick uh, and you didn't come to, you didn't take care of me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. So it goes through this list. Those people on his left, they are surprised and they say, Lord, when did we see you like this? So like essentially they're saying, they're claiming to know him. They're claiming that he is their Lord and he, the son of man, Um, from, from whom, um, no one, no one comes to the father apart from him. The one who has the ability to separate people from the father, keep people from the father. He says to those religious people, what you did not do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. He says nothing about confession. He says nothing about religion. He just says what you didn't do for these people. You didn't do for me. And then probably the more troubling part of the scripture for me is then when he says, looks at those on his right and he says, come and enter my rest because you did all these things. And these people are shocked. Shocked. They thought they were damned.
1: When? That's the question. They ask, uh, they're like, uh,
0: uh sir, I like, don't mean to interrupt you in your judgment <laughs> and stuff, but I
1: mean, this is great. But
0: yeah, I think you got the wrong group, man. Because, like, we're telling you, dude, we never saw you, bro. <laughs> you know, and he says, no, actually, what you did for all the least of these, you did for me. So, like, the most explicit, in my opinion, judgment story that we have. The only time Jesus talked about it. Okay. In the New Testament, everyone on either side is surprised. Like, judgment is this party that where everybody that shows up is shocked at the outcome. The people who thought they were insiders or outsiders and the people that thought they were outsiders or insiders, like it's the most disturbing story in all of the Bible. It's the story about eternal salvation. It's the story about judgment. And somehow we allow ourselves to smugly learn the Romans road and think to ourselves, you know what? I believed. Yeah. So I'm good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just like I said, it, it. I just feel like once again that if we are claiming to want the heart of Jesus and want the to live like He did, you know, the Philippians two that we often quote a lot too, that the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Like it, it, it shouldn't be a, a thing of, um, of, 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 of thinking that I'm better. But it should once again break our heart and when we hear the passages like we we almost need this assurance that there are going to be people suffering forever um and and i think that 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 wasn't the heart of who jesus was i i remember a parable by um a contemporary irish philosopher peter rollins and it's really got me thinking because once again I i think that that we have sold, like, it's all about what happens at the end. It's all about what you're going to get. It's all about what the city looks like. It's all that whole thing. And he tells this parable that um, you get to the gates, the pearly gates, you know, the, the great joke, um, and Peter's there, and and you have some friends with you, and and Peter's like, great job, man. You did it. Welcome in. And and then he t- in the parable, he says, you're about to step across the line, but then you remember that you have some friends with you. And, and you say, well, what about them? And Peter's like, yeah, look at them, man. They, they didn't believe they're terrible people. They're drunkards. They're all this stuff. And um, he's like, so we can't let them in. And the, where the parable takes a twist is, is you look at Peter and say, you, you remember your point of reference is Jesus who left a perfect place to hang out with those people. And you remember your point of reference is the one who came and dwelt among us and so the parable has a twist where you look at Peter and say, you know what? I'm just going to stay with them. I'm going to be with them. That, that that God forsook heaven, Jesus forsook heaven. And if that's the example, wouldn't that be how we choose to, to want our lives to be as well? And so, and then the parable ends that Peter smiles and he's like, finally, somebody gets it. <laughs> somebody finally gets it. And I think we've just built up this whole end thing about all the things we're going to get. But once again, if Jesus is the example and salvation is trying to be like him, what does it mean about how we live and how we view people who are on the underside and who don't have the things they need and who other people have rejected and who could never step foot in our church because um, of, of how they might be perceived or how they might be looked at and maybe not our churches, I don't know, that's probably a bad generalization. But I just think that that we the, the parable reminds me that it, once again, if if the same mind that was in Jesus is the same mind that is to be in me, why do I think that that my life is somehow is is to be lived for all the stuff I'm going to get, than this selfless life of of and in and, and this life of of s- emptying of self and, and, and why do I why would I celebrate anybody going to a place where they're they're somehow going to be eternally um punished for forever and ever that 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 should be the most heartbreaking thing and if I'm being like Jesus, wouldn't I do whatever I could, maybe even in the afterlife to to make sure that I am do whatever I can to say you want to follow this i don't know i don't know that that was a long rant about um I don't know, it just gets me thinking, like I said, that is salvation to becoming, is it really becoming like Jesus? And then what does that mean holistically? Or is salvation about what happens to me after I die? And I think the um, we have to have better, bigger, more robust conversations about what does it actually mean to be saved for my life and what that looks like. So at
0: this point in the conversation, I'm going to Rail against some kind of evangelical platitudes that bother me when we talk about salvation. So
1: I didn't realize I thought that's what the podcast might have. was always.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so here is one. So, here is one. I am just a sin. I am just a sinner saved by grace. So there is this idea that, like in evangelicalism, that we are sinners that are separated from God, and that God saves us radically by His grace. But in evangelicalism, for some people, that also makes them feel like they're off the hook, that like they can just, that because God, God's grace is so big and sufficient, then I don't have to work out my faith in fear and trembling at all, or I don't have to like act act out my faith. And this is just a, this is a big problem. I I I really cannot stand it when I hear people who are Christians identifying themselves as sinners. Because I'm like, wait a second, if you actually believe that Christ has atoned for you and that his grace is sufficient for you, then you're actually not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. Live like it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is this is one of the things that that really, really bothers me. Um that there's another there's another element to the to the the sinner the sinner saved by by grace thing. And it's the it's that not only do I not think that that I have to do anything because God's grace is sufficient, and that it seems to me to kind of like translate into um, I don't know, a lack of, a lack of care about how I live. This also translates into the way that we talk about salvation with other people is that we think that our job is to convert people by convincing them that they too are filthy sinners. Like if I can convince you that you're a filthy sinner and that you need God's grace, then somehow I'm doing you a favor. But the thing is, as I look at Jesus, I don't remember any story where he goes to someone and says, you are a filthy sinner who desperately needs God's grace. He looks at the lady who's caught in adultery and he says, I'm not condemning you, but hey, go sin no more. Essentially, he doesn't convict her of being a sinner and he all of a sudden talks to her about her potential and holiness. I love John 3, 17. I think it's the most neglected verse in evangelicalism. God did not not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is what we do though. This is how we teach salvation. We condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I feel like our approach to salvation has left us in this really bleak place of talking about sin um, as the thing that's being atoned for. And it's just completely missing the richness of everything that Jesus talked about actually in his life it's like we use romans to talk about salvation more than we actually use jesus to talk about salvation
1: yeah we try to fit jesus into paul rather than fitting paul into who jesus was um yeah i i i just um i i think that 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 the part that you said about matthew 25 and the part that i think about the end is is i think we're going to be surprised and my guess is the shock will come more from um, all the nations and tribes and people and dialects that, that maybe we thought were um, from places that were God-forsaken. It might just be around the throne, celebrating and singing the places that we thought that were the most unChristian and unchurched. We might be surprised that that maybe. Maybe they believed in more of the truth than we gave them credit for or or a bigger understanding of um of of what Jesus was about than than even we understood and what that looked like and I think that that we should yearn and we should hope and we should pray that God will have mercy on on all people and and what 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 would it hurt me if um if we get there and, and, and there's actually more people, uh, why would that be a bad thing for me? If, if I, if I have God's heart, then, I, then I want all people. I think there's a verse in Hebrews that says, it's God's will that all people, all people be saved. And, um, now we're not, I don't think sitting here saying that that's, you know, that, that, that it's going to happen. Cause I think that love demands a choice. Um, and that the choice is ours, um, and, and maybe more of, of how we're choosing to be. But I think the condemnation that Jesus had for people was not the, the sinners and, and, and the tax collectors and the woman caught in adultery, but he really had a big problem with the church people who were trying to narrow the focus of, of who was in and who was out and, 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 and really narrowed the focus of what they thought Messiah should be. And, and he seemed to have some pretty strong words for those people. And, um, and so I just think that that as we're journeying through life, um we we've gotta get back to this understanding of of Jesus' heart and his compassion and his want to be um and to redeem all of creation and all people and and not this well they don't believe like I do, or they haven't had a moment, the moralist like I have, and the emotion, and they're pretty emotionless, and they you know, um, they're not pure like I am, and, and they're not living like I am, so there's no way they can be apart. And I think we have to get, leave room for God's grace. And, and I think that um, Dr. Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, uh, said it best, um, I think, when somebody asked him if he thought he was going to heaven when he died. And he says, the only thing that I believe, the only reality I know is that God will be who God is. God will be the God who I see in the Bible. That's the only hope that I have, and um, and man, seemed like He was uh, uh, He wanted this once again for all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, everybody. And 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 I don't know how He's going to do it. I, I don't have all the answers for what that final judgment's going to look like, but I trust that He will do what is right, and and He will will separate the sheeps from the goats in such a way that only he can do it. And, and, and in the end, he will be God, uh, the God that we read in the Bible. And and so I just think that we, we make it so narrow, we make it so, because I think it makes us feel better about being on the inside rather than the outside. And uh, I just pray God might give us bigger eyes and bigger hearts and bigger vision for For how do we live in this kingdom and in this world in such a way that that welcomes all people?